PTSD. <laughs> you don't remember this likely, but I do. The last time they sang that, I was complimenting them. I was trying to say the word bluegrass, and it was one of two occasions that I've used an expletive from the pulpit unintentionally. Um, and there are certain people, Barnabases, sons of encouragement, who regularly remind me of that. It was a great bluegrass song. That's not what I said the first time, but it's what I, it's what I meant. Several weeks ago, I, I told you we were in Acts 27, Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome on that ill-fated voyage. And I told you about my own experience sailing in the British Virgin Islands. And I mentioned sort of in passing that you can get a really good deal on a charter boat in the Caribbean if you're willing to go during hurricane season. <laughs> when we went the first time in August 2017, it was during an unusually high hurricane uh, season. And so we were watching the weather. We were zoned in like Jim Cantori. Uh, we set sail on August 26th, and exactly that same day, as we, as we left port on August 26th, that same day the National Hurricane Center identified a wave off the coast of Africa, and that wave became a tropical depression, tropical depression became a tropical storm, and eventually the named Hurricane Irma. And we barely made it out of the BVI before Irma, which eventually became a Category 5 hurricane, absolutely decimated uh, the Caribbean, particularly the British Virgin Islands. Well, that was in 2017. This past fall, uh, we returned. Uh, I, I asked Kimbo for our 20th anniversary, what was her favorite trip? Where did she, she want to go? And she said, I want to go back there. So we went two years later. And I was curious. I was, I was eager to see how things had changed since the hurricane two years earlier. You may have seen this, um, you may have seen this uh, online, but uh, buildings were flattened, uh, entire landscapes were changed, in particular on, on the west end of the island of Tortola, there's a little inlet called Soper's Hole, and the first time we went, it's this beautiful little place, the buildings are, are, are brightly colored and beautiful, and uh, just a wonderful little community lining the shore. On the north side of that inlet is the customs office, and so it's the first place that many people who are entering British territory, it's the first place they go. They, they pull up in a ferry uh, to the customs office. Irma absolutely destroyed that inlet. Buildings gone, uh, boats on the second story of hotels. That customs office entirely wiped off the map. And yet, this pier remained. This one pier stood fast. It's, it's the pier where ferries tie up as they're entering the territory. That pier has been there um, for 70 plus years since the middle of the last century. It's concrete, you could tell, was battered and a little bit eroded. The rubber fenders so that boats don't crash into the concrete had been replaced, but the pier was still standing because its pilings were driven down deep into the ocean floor. In life, storms come and, and doubts assail us, and we need something like that. We need something solid. We need something that has stood the test of time and provides a mooring for our faith like it has provided a mooring for the faith of those who've gone before us. 
And the Apostles' Creed is just such a thing. The the Apostles' Creed is that mooring. For nearly 2,000 years, Christians have confessed it. it. It tells us the story of Scripture in 115 words. It tells us the story of Scripture and what parts of that story are most important. It takes takes the, the greatest fundamental truths of Scripture and condenses them down to their essence. And it's, it's a pier driven down deep. It's an anchor. It's a stake that we can cling to in the midst of the storms of life. And, and many things have changed, but the foundations of our faith have not changed. They are the same and they are solid. And so that's what we're doing for these next several weeks. We're looking at the Apostles' Creed, this statement of faith, this confession that Christians who have gone before us and those who will come after us have, have uh, affirmed about what we believe. And today we're going to consider the opening words. Last week, we, we looked at the creed in general and the need for creeds, why we have them, uh, how God uses them in our life, that God's people have long used creedal statements going back uh, to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, we see them in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to dive right in and consider the very first words, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Just seven words but seven words that are packed with power. Now, last week, I mentioned that this Apostles' Creed sermon series, it's going to be fairly theological. And so I want you to keep this in mind. Theology is is like a skeleton. It's a frame. It is absolutely necessary to support a living faith. But if our theological skeleton is the only thing that's visible about our faith, then we're either malnourished or we're dead. And so theology is a frame. We have to have it to build upon this living faith. It's it's very important, but it shouldn't be the thing that is most visible about us. When we say, I believe, when when we open up And speak those words with one voice saying, I believe. We're not saying that we completely intellectually understand all of this. We're not saying that compared to all the other options, this one seems to be the best. We're saying, Lord, I trust. I trust. With my head, but more so with my heart. I trust that this is true. We're we're saying, Lord, this is what I believe. Even still, help my unbelief. Irenaeus in the second century said that the church at the time needed a statement so that little children and illiterate barbarians could know what Christianity was all about. And that's what the creed does. It's simple, it's concise, it's memorable. It tells us the story of our faith and our God and what parts of that story are most important. And in some ways, it's a paradox. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is a paradox because it's simple enough for children to memorize and understand, but it's also rich enough for theologians to explore. It's it's, it's hard, and it's, it's going to be hard, to find a singular passage of Scripture that contains everything related to God the Father Almighty. So the creed, what it does is it, is it takes the whole of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, and, and it puts it into phrases. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. It takes the teaching of Scripture and puts it into these, into these phrases, but there's not one singular passage of Scripture that we can turn to, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10, but we'll also hop around and look at a few other passages as well. And so if you have your Bible, I would love for you to make your way there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack and uh, make your way to page 977. Or you can just pull out your bulletin. It's found there as well. Let's pray, and then we will uh, read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and we're so thankful for the word. We're thankful that you've committed your will and ways uh, to writing so that we may know you, we may know what pleases you, how to worship you, what it means to be in relationship with you. We're thankful for those who've gone before us, uh, who've been rooted in the gospel with Christ as the cornerstone, uh, built upon the foundation of scripture, and have provided for us the Apostles' Creed, uh, a simple statement of what Christians who have gone before us and those who have come after us and us today, what we believe. And so let us believe these things, Spirit work among us, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. This is the Holy Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May God write his word upon our hearts. One of my favorite photos is the iconic photo it's in the Oval Office. JFK Jr. is peeking out from the door of the Resolute Desk. Do you know the picture? The Oval Office, President Kennedy is sitting at his desk. JFK Jr. is under the Resolute Desk looking. Who would dare treat a 100, at the time it was 100 years old, this 100-year-old this piece of furniture like it was his personal playset? Who would dare interrupt the work of the most powerful man on earth? I'll tell you, a son. A son who knows the love of his father and that he is loved by his father. A son who knows that that man sitting behind the desk that everyone else calls Mr. President, he calls Daddy. J.I. Packer says that you can judge how well a person understands Christianity by how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. I want you to sit in that for a moment. I want you to consider that. That's part of the, it's, it's a sentence out of the opening quote from your bulletin. That you can judge how well you understand Christianity by how much you, you make of having God as your father and being called his child. 
Packer also says that the essence of the New Testament is the fact that God has revealed himself as Father. I want you to ponder what I'm about to say. The Shorter Catechism tells us who our God is. It says God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That holy, eternal, omnibenevolent God, he's your father and you're his child. That infinitely powerful God who has taken upon himself the name Abba. And he invites you to cry out to him. Friends, I'm absolutely convinced. I am absolutely convinced that the fatherhood of God and our relationship to him as, as his adopted children is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced of it. I, I hope that I'm right because I spent the last year and a half writing a dissertation on this very topic. Of all the things I'm passionate about, I think it's this. That to know God, that infinite, eternal, unchangeable, holy, righteous, just, and good, to know that God is to know him as Father. In, in John Calvin's last will and testament, he wrote, I have no other defense or refuge than the Father's gratuitous adoption on which my entire salvation depends. Think about that. Of all the ways that Calvin could have articulated his hope of salvation, he chose the language of God's fatherhood and being his adopted child. 500 years later, Sinclair Ferguson, a modern-day Calvin, wrote this, Sonship to God is the apex of all creation. It's the very goal of redemption, even higher than justification. During the Reformation of the 16th century, a lot of attention was given to the doctrine of justification. Ju justification means that, that God imputed, or, or you can think of it this way, transferred your sin to Jesus, and then he transferred Jesus' righteousness to you. He declared you not guilty and also perfectly righteous. That's what it means to be justified. And that's amazing, isn't it? That God would, would impute our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. That when we, stand, when we stand in the courtroom of God, justification is a forensic term, a legal term. When we stand in the courtroom of God, he wraps his gavel and he says, not guilty. But he goes beyond that. And he says, perfectly righteous. He looks at us as he looks at his own son. It's amazing. But it's not as amazing as adoption. Trevor Burke, who, who probably has written more about this subject than anyone else, uh, says this. To be declared righteous at the bar of God is one thing. But to be adopted into God's family is quite another. Friends, the defining characteristic of a relationship with God is knowing him as father. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, when you pray... Uh, pray in this manner. And he did not say, our most holy and omnipotent creator to whom we owe our allegiance. Now that's true. Those words are true, but that is not how Jesus prayed and it's not how he taught us to pray. He said, when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father. 
who art in heaven. Do you believe that God is your father? Do you think of yourself as his child? I hope you do. With those things in mind, I want to share with you three uh, attributes, three qualities of your heavenly father. First of all, God is a loving father. We see that in our text in Ephesians 4 and 5. Really, the end of verse 4 should be included with verse 5. In love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first member of the Trinity. Blessed be this God. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Before you were you, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eyes, you were the apple of God's eye. He set his loving gaze upon you before the foundation of the world. And Paul tells us he did so in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. The apostle John put it beautifully in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. In Romans 5, Paul says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and so I want you to understand how these two verses um, exist side by side. The demonstration of God's love is that he sent his only begotten son to sinners so that sinners could become his sons and daughters. That's the demonstration of his love. But John says, see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us. The kind of love God has for us is fatherly, fatherly love. I understand that for some, believing in God as a loving father is hard. Every single one of us has daddy issues. And I mean that seriously. If your dad was an abusive man, perhaps you still carry the internal scars of that abuse. If your dad was a model husband and a model father, maybe you carry around performance anxiety and feelings of inadequacy that you're never going to measure up to your father. None of us fully understand how our earthly fathers shape our identity and our view of God the Father. We, we either project onto God the imperfections of our earthly father, or we project onto our earthly father the perfections of our God. And listen, your earthly father can't handle that weight. He wasn't meant to. God alone is the perfect Father who will fail you, who will never disappoint you. I'm not saying that those of you men, us who are fathers, that we, that we shouldn't strive to love as God Almighty loves. We absolutely should. But, but if, you, if you struggle with the language of the creed, if you struggle with the language of Paul, if you struggle to understand God as a loving Father because you did not have a loving Father, if you struggle to trust and love and listen, I want you to know there is a father. He calls you son or he calls you daughter. 
And he says, you can call me Abba. And this father not only knows your name, but he made your frame. He loves you. And, and this reality, uh, I think, set in upon me probably eight years ago. I remember exactly where I was. It's very simple, and when I tell you, you're going to say, you, did, you didn't figure that out till eight years ago? Your heavenly father, he does not love you as you should be. He does not love you as you will be. He does not love you as he's going to make you to be. He loves you right as you are, right where you sit. Now, he loves you so much, and he's great enough and almighty enough, we're going to get to that, where he's not going to leave you where you are. He's going to change you and transform you to be perfectly like his son. But he loves you. St. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. So the first thing that we believe, the first thing that we confess, the first pier or mooring or stake that we drive is that we believe in God the Father, a Father who loves us. Now, I often get a pain in my heart, not chest pains from eating pizza, but a pain in my heart or a lump in my throat because I know that everything that I've just shared with you that me and my kids are no exception to that. I know, I'm keenly aware that for my children, their view of God will develop in large part because of their view of me as their father. And I, I can't remember all the times when I've lost my cool or raised my voice or spoken a harsh word or been a bad father. And I have not, I have not shown them a true, benevolent, loving father as God would have me to show them. And I failed time and time again. But I've tried to be faithful. But I even fail at that. What I want you to know, friends, is that my father and your father, he never fails. He's never failed me. He never fails my kids. He'll never fail you. He is absolutely faithful. And that's the second attribute that I want you to consider just for a moment. God is a loving father. He's also a faithful father. Now, there are, there are many Bible verses that address God's faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, uh, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Praise God for that. One of my favorites, though, that specifically addresses God the Father as being faithful is James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, that verse doesn't use the word faithfulness, but here's what it tells us. It tells us that God is immutable. That's the, the theological term that means that God does not change. He is immutable. He doesn't change. He, he cannot change. He is constant. He's faithful. You can think of God's faithfulness in a couple ways. First, he's unchanging. He's immovable. He's fixed. And isn't that comforting in a world that's constantly changing? Maybe you imagine God's faithfulness like that peer that I mentioned in Soper's Hole. Even though everything around it 
has been ravaged and changed. It remains the same. James says every good gift, every perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. Now, now that alone is amazing, but James says with our God there's no variation. There, there's, there's no shadow. As the, as the sun moves, his shadow doesn't change. He is absolutely the same. He is faithful. A second way to think of God's faithfulness is, is in his generous giving. James says every good gift comes from this faithful father. I, you know, I love to give my kids gifts. I love to meet their needs. But my giving pales in comparison to God's giving. He, he is absolutely faithful to give us everything we need. Do you remember Jesus' words from Matthew 7? Which, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will hand him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will hand him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? He is faithful. He's constant, unchanging. He is faithful in giving. God is, uh, is faithful, and His faithfulness allows us to come to Him at any time with any need. This past weekend was a real, a real test of my own fatherhood. On Wednesday, Kimbo left with our oldest son, spent four days in New York. We have four children, so she was with the one who's the least maintenance, and I was with the three who were the highest maintenance. And, and typically, I would rely on my mother-in-law who lives here in town, but she was out of town as well, so it was just me. I was reminded it's not babysitting, it's parenting. And I got to tell you, what I'm about to say that is true of our Heavenly Father was not true of me over the last three days. He never gets put out, burned out, or tired out. I texted Kimbo. Uh, I think it was Friday morning, and I said, you are an absolute saint for dealing with this every single morning. <laughs> That's the trick, wives. That's the trick. Just um, plan the trip, go out of town, and leave, leave your kids with your husband for a few days, and, you know, foot rubs galore, whatever. Friends, God is a, is a faithful father. He never gets put out. He never gets burned out. He never gets tired out. He never needs his alone time. He's faithful. Now, your, your earthly father may not have been faithful, may not have been generous, but your heavenly father literally wrote the book on that. And so we, we believe, what do we believe? In God as father, who's loving, who's faithful. And here's a third attribute. He is almighty. I believe in God the Father, almighty. Almighty, it's a, it's a synonym for omnipotent. It means that God possesses all power, and he himself is all-powerful. And, and like the attribute of God's faithfulness and really God's love, there isn't a single verse that we could turn to because there are tons of verses that affirm God's power, that he is almighty. One of my favorites is Psalm 115.3. 
says, our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. I, I love that David just gets right to the point. Our God is in heaven. He does what he wants to do. Romans 1.20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since creation. 1 John 4.4, 4. little children, I love the language of this, John uh, speaking to these uh, disciples, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. The them is the evil spirits and the enemy. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, every single one of us wants a dad who's powerful, wants a dad who's almighty. And that's why kids on the playground say things like, yeah, well, my dad can run a 3-5-40. My, my dad has nine black belts in Taekwondo Jitsu or whatever we, you know, comes out of our mouths. Now, that's just kid stuff. But when it comes to God the Father Almighty, it's true. There's no, there's no superlative that does God justice. He is greater than anything and anyone because he is over everything and everyone. He is almighty. Now, you don't, you don't have to be a dad to understand this. Moms, you can understand this. Even those without kids, those of you that without, without children, you can relate to this. We understand this instinctively. You long to provide for your children. You long to protect your children, but you, you have limits. You want to provide for them. You want to protect them, but there's only so much that you can do. My oldest son, Cademan, he's a senior in high school, um, and it's this really weird stage of life because he's bigger than I am, um, but he's still my boy. He's a man, but he's my son. And several weeks ago, he called me from a ski slope in Colorado. And he had fallen hard while snowboarding. And that was the first call that he made. And he said, Dad, I can't move. I can't move my arm. And I could tell he was in pain. And I was in pain for him. But what could I do? Nothing. I couldn't do anything for him. He was 750 miles away. I was powerless. But I want you to know, friends, there's never a situation, there's never a time when your heavenly Father is powerless. He is God the Father Almighty. He is by His very nature. Talking about this with um, the folks in the intro to CPC class, just a fun thing to think about. How, how would you define God? What is your definition of God? It's not the easiest thing to do. You could use the shorter catechism, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. That really describes the character and attributes of God. But how would you define God? I, I think the best definition that's been given was by Thomas Aquinas, who said, God is that being above which there is none greater. Simple. God is that being above which there's none greater. So whatever conception you have of God, if there's something greater than that conception, that is God. God is great, and he is almighty, and as his children, that should comfort us. It should also compel us to worship him. When Jesus was telling his disciples how to pray, he said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He is our Father, but he is also holy. His name is hallowed. He is almighty and worthy of our worship. 
And so the invitation this morning, friends, is to believe. For some of you, maybe that's belief for the first time. To, To believe in God the Father who sent his only son so that you might be called a son or a daughter. For many of you, it's to once again believe that God is not some distant deity, that he's not some abstraction, but he is your Father who knows your name and invites you to call him Father. If I could challenge you to grow in one area, it would be to to grow in the understanding, as Packer said or as Sinclair Ferguson said, to grow in understanding God is your Father and what it means to be his child. He is a father, loving, faithful, almighty father who welcomes you as his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your grace and your goodness to us. Continue to be gracious to us as we come to the table, uh, as we consider our sin and the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners like us. The only begotten son uh, gave his life to make uh, sons and daughters. So we're thankful for your plan. We're thankful that, that the, uh, the creed doesn't call us to simply confess and believe um, in an abstraction, in an abstract God, but in God the Father Almighty. And so we pray by that power through Christ and the intercession of the Spirit. Amen. You'll see